0: Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty.
1: I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Joshua Zadro. He's a physical therapist who's a postdoc at the School of Public Health uh, at Sydney Medical School at the University of Sydney, where he's also a research scientist at the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health. So welcome Dr. Zadro, it's great to have you with me today. Thanks Alan, thanks for the invitation. Today we're gonna talk about an article that he published in PTJ that it's a systematic review And the title is Effectiveness of Implementation Strategies to Improve Adherence of Physical Therapist Treatment Choices to Clinical Practice Guidelines for Musculoskeletal Conditions. I really enjoyed reading your review because I mentioned to you earlier, I think this is a really important and uh, overlooked area. And so I look forward to discussing it with you. Let's start by talking about uh, in the early phases of the article, you mentioned that 27% of physical therapists provide treatments for musculoskeletal conditions that guidelines recommend against using completely, and 45% provide treatments that have not been well researched and very poor evidence. Why do you think there's so much care that's not evidence-based that continues to be provided by our professionals?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Alan. I think there's likely many reasons, and it's probably a combination of reasons rather than just one. Um, we're also we're just about to publish an editorial in uh, JOSPT about the drivers of overuse in physiotherapy, and this is part of a seven-article series on overcoming overuse. And so we highlight some key issues in that uh, paper. But I think, for me, the main one would be uh, bias from clinical experience. So as a clinician, you see patients day-to-day, and a lot of clinicians provide treatments, see patients get better, and then attribute the treatment that they provided to those improvements uh, without considering things like natural history uh, or regression to the mean. So I think that's a very strong driver because it's, it's that bias that's in your face every day when you're practicing. And I think this also ties into the fact that there are some physios out there that believe clinical experience is more valuable than what the evidence says. And so there are several studies that have looked at Uh, the clinicians simply don't see the value in what guidelines suggest and uh, they use their own practice and own experience to guide what they do Uh, and and I think that's they're probably the two strong ones I think this can often also stem from what our mentors teach us in an early stage so as physios graduate and become new grads they're often mentored by maybe older and more experienced physios who have uh, certain ways of treating patients and Sometimes, you know, the imbalance of experience and mentoring can uh, lead other physios to provide the same treatment as some of those other ones have as well. So those are some ones. I think also, depending on what setting that you work in. So in Australia, you can be working in a private practice and working for a boss. And so then there's also this added pressure to over-service patients and provide more care when actually more care might not be necessary. And this might be to keep business. So I think those are, those are probably some of the key ones. I guess time constraints as well. So, you know, for some physios working in a busy practice, it can be hard to keep up to date with the evidence. Um, if you've got limited time slots for appointments, it can be hard to give, you know, adequate education and exercise. Uh, there's also funding arrangements that make it difficult to provide evidence-based care in some settings. So uh, clinicians get paid the more time times they see a patient or the wider range of treatment modalities they provide. Uh, you might have a practice environment that has no room for an exercise program in the clinic. So there's a lot of drivers. One that, one that also comes up a lot from the clinician's perspective is patient expectations. So a lot of physios say that uh, patients request low value care or non evidence-based care. And it's quite hard to deal with those requests particularly if patients have had good experiences with some of those treatments previously, or if they've had family or friends who have benefited from those. You I think know, that- the, sad,
1: the sad part is all of the drivers that you mentioned were present 45 years ago when I became a physical therapist. And I would hope we had made more improvement uh, in the half century since. And it's, it's rather disappointing to, to hear what you're describing. And that leads yeah. me to my second question, which is also related to the first. You talk about that continuing education courses that are offered by people in our field continue to promote non evidence based treatments, and that's a barrier to evidence based care. And again, that was very prevalent when I became a therapist many years ago. Why do you think that continues? I was very disappointed to read that.
0: Yeah, I think. It's a tricky question, and I'm not sure if I know all the answers to this, but my first guess is it's, it's quite hard to regulate what's taught in these courses. You know, a course could seem quite reasonable from its description and from who's running it, but once you get down into what's actually been taught in the course, it might not be the case. And I guess the other issue is that it's hard to standardize uh, what someone considers evidence-based. So someone might consider a systematic review is a threshold to be saying whether a treatment's evidence-based. Someone else might consider it a few good RCTs. But then that becomes the whole issue of, you know, what, how, how good does a study have to be before we start recommending a treatment? And there can be some dodgy RCTs out there that show a treatment works and this might be enough or another clinician might, you know, see a few positive case studies or case reports published and use that as evidence. So I think it's very hard to standardise what people are calling sufficient evidence to teach an approach. And I think experts would disagree on these issues as well. So yeah, I think this creates a lot of, I guess, uncertainty as to at what point should we start promoting a treatment based on the amount of evidence supporting it. But I agree, there's there's clearly treatments that are in guidelines that guidelines say do not do, but they're still being taught in courses. And for me, I wonder if that's just the issue of that some clinicians see that evidence and just, Don't think it applies to their practice or just don't trust in the evidence. So continue to teach those courses.
1: It does make you wonder how effective clinical practice guidelines really are. You know, your review focused on physical therapy care that's provided for clients with musculoskeletal conditions. And so we can infer from your study uh, to that group of patients. Do you think that the barriers are similar across? different uh, impairment uh, types, or do you think they're quite distinct? I think there's a lot of barriers that
0: would be similar if I think of providing care for musculoskeletal conditions versus other ones. So for example, you know, a lack of time is probably just as an issue to providing non-evidence-based care in MSK as it is in neurology or cardiorespiratory, uh, the same way inadequate training and evidence-based practice Uh, poor access to research. But I think there probably are some barriers that are specific to musculoskeletal conditions, such as uh, financial incentives, I think would probably drive more poor care for MSK conditions if I think of people working in private practice because there is that incentive to uh, keep patients around for business and provide more care rather than less. But when I think of a physio working in a hospital setting, um, say in some sort of cardiorespiratory ward, I don't think there would be as many financial incentives to keep those patients in hospitals. The incentive would probably be to discharge them earlier because that's where you hit your performance. It would be interesting
1: to know if it's setting that drives it or if it's impairment type. And I know you didn't look at that, but it just strikes me it would be interesting because some of what you're mentioning strikes me as setting-specific more than type of condition.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I guess working in a hospital, treating MSK conditions, if you're not paid based on, you know, per patient you see, then there's probably less incentives to provide more care. So yeah, I think that's an interesting area for future inquiry.
1: You mentioned in your article that there are really a very limited number of trials available to review. And then it struck me as interesting that given that, you excluded evidence from non-randomized trials, single-arm trials, observational studies, and case reports or or case uh, studies. What what was your reasoning for that? I mean, it obviously indicates a value that you place on different types of evidence right out of the box.
0: Yeah, I think there's probably always going to be two camps on this. There's going to be the people who just do systematic reviews of RCTs, and the other camp, which includes all type of study designs. But I definitely sit in the first camp because uh, RCTs I guess, are the highest level level of evidence in terms of study design that can be included in a systematic review. And organisations like Cochrane strongly advise against including non-randomised studies. And the reason this is is because randomised control trials give the best estimate of a treatment effect. And that's what we're interested in when we do systematic reviews to find out how effective, including the magnitude, are certain interventions. And so for this reason, I don't think single-arm trials, observational studies, case series and case reports should be used to understand a treatment effect. You may use them to understand what interventions have been tested in more of a scoping review method to see what's out there. But in this review, we're really interested to see how effective certain interventions are and to what magnitude they change practice. And so to do this, we decided to opt with just including randomized trials.
1: If I could play devil's advocate for a moment. On the other side, the argument is that RCTs are really limited in generalizability. And so the risk you run by only looking at RCTs is that you have greater internal validity, but you give up on generalizability. And so the risk is, you're going to overgeneralize the findings if you only focus on RCTs that focus on a very limited slice of the patient population. Yeah, I, I
0: agree with that. And I think that's why you need to be careful when you interpret systematic reviews to really pay close attention to the inclusion criteria and the patients that the findings will apply to. And so in our review, we've got, you know, a few subsets of different conditions that we're looking at. And so, We do need to be careful not to extrapolate this to all MSK conditions.
1: The other choice you made, and I understand it, uh, you focused on one profession, physical therapist. Do you think the factors related to adhering to guidelines are different for different professions? Or were you just going for the physical therapy group because that's the background from which you come? I'm, I'm curious about that.
0: Yeah, I guess it's a bit of both. So I think, I think a lot of barriers overlap between health professionals, particularly different health professionals involved in the care for musculoskeletal conditions. But we were really interested in understanding what interventions help physios provide better care. And, of course, there's a bias because my background's physio. But I also think if we expanded the inclusion criteria to other health professionals, uh, we risk, I guess, extrapolating the findings that work in different settings to physiotherapy. For example, we might've found some interventions that work quite well for improving what care physicians provide in primary care or in a hospital. But then you know, that might not have been as applicable to what physios are providing. So I guess limiting the inclusion criteria, really our aim is to make the findings as most applicable to our profession as we could. And I guess it also yeah. makes it more manageable. There's probably a lot, of, a lot of studies on physician practice out there as well.
1: Yeah, that makes sense let's talk a little bit about the the findings, because I I found them quite interesting. You listed a number of interventions that seemed to be related to adherence to clinical practice guidelines. One large one was disseminating clinical practice guidelines, and that, of course, makes perfect sense. But there were additional elements, um, interactive education meetings, tailored interventions and monitoring of the performance of healthcare delivery, peer assessment, and local opinion leaders, as well as educational outreach visits. It got me thinking, is there an underlying theoretical basis for the kinds of interventions that seem to be effective? Did you and your colleagues think about that from a theoretical perspective? Because that might help future uh, work in trying to improve adherence to clinical practice guidelines.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think before you do a study looking at ways of changing practice, you really need to understand what the barriers are. So I guess each of those interventions that found effects, they work by addressing different barriers to uh, evidence-based practice. So for example, disseminating guidelines, educational meetings, and educational outreach are all targeting knowledge as a barrier. So in other words, these interventions work by increasing physiotherapists' knowledge of what is and isn't evidence-based or isn't, isn't recommended in guidelines. On the other hand, monitoring of performance and peer assessment, which are other implementation strategies, uh, work by different mechanisms as they target different barriers. So monitoring of performance may work by highlighting an evidence practice gap to a clinician uh, that they might've been unaware of. And it might motivate clinicians to close this gap or motivate clinicians as they receive feedback that their care is becoming more aligned with guidelines over time. Peer assessment probably works similar to monitoring of performance, except clinicians might feel more accountable to their peers than they would an external person or when viewing their own performance. So clinicians might want to impress their peers and this could drive the positive behavior more so if they were just monitoring their own performance. And finally, I guess peer assessment can also work by deepening a clinician's understanding of the evidence base, because they always say, because the best way to learn something is to teach it or assess it. So, As they're assessing their peers on what's right, they're developing this deeper understanding of, you know, what's evidence based for their own practice. So, yeah, I think all these interventions work in different ways. And again, I think just to reiterate, the first point is that if you're ever going to do an implementation study, you really need to look at what are the key barriers and how you want to address that. So it seems like in most of these studies, the barrier was that physios didn't know what the guidelines uh, were saying.
1: I would suspect that's necessary but not going to be sufficient given the fact that we've not done a very good job of increasing adherence over the past decades, at least based on what, what you have been finding in your work. Exactly. I, would, I guess
0: this, yeah, the second no, issue is you could you could identify the barrier, but then is the intervention good enough to overcome the barrier? And that seems to be where we're falling short.
1: Yeah. My My personal sense is we fall back too much on education, assuming that if we give people knowledge, that's going to change behavior. Although we know from all the behavioral science that that's never really sufficient.
0: Yeah. Active implementation strategies is always better. And I guess if, you know, if clinicians have bias from their own clinical experience and don't trust what the guidelines say, then I don't think any amount of knowledge is going to help that group.
1: You're in a school of public health, Joshua. What's your department?
0: So we're the uh, Institute for Musculoskeletal Health. So it's a a group of, yeah, a group of physios, GPs, surgeons, pharmacists, psychologists working in musculoskeletal research.
1: Did you have a lot of contact with your faculty colleagues in public health? Uh, Yeah, we work closely with them. So
0: there's, yeah, I guess there's another group that we work closely with who's looking at things like shared decision-making and I guess different areas of public health as well, like, communication, health literacy, yeah. a vast range of things. So yeah, we do collaborate quite closely with them.
1: I was struck that you didn't see any trend in your findings as a function of the characteristics of the therapist, age, sex, year of, years of experience. Uh, I would have expected some difference. Did you have hypotheses going in on that or were you just looking at it to see what would emerge?
0: Yeah, I think the real reason that we didn't find any difference is just because of the limited number of studies and you know, the diverse type of conditions included. So there was only nine RCTs included in the review. And to look at trends, you really need a large number of trials to see whether things are changing. My hypothesis would be that, I guess, age and years of experience could be strong barriers potentially to how an implementation strategy works. So if you've got a clinician with more experience, who's been practicing a certain way for a long period of time, they might find it harder to change practice than someone who's just come out of university and is quite malleable in their thinking. But it'd again, be we can actually to, see that.
1: Yeah I, we need more studies, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think studies.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I think more trials are needed to start exploring those and also exploring other barriers, such as maybe what people think of guidelines or if there's any involvement in teaching or research to see yeah. you know, what characteristics of physios make implementation strategies more effective.
1: That leads me to my last question. What, what do you see as some of the key areas that the field should be focused on in future research and trying to improve adherence to evidence-based practice?
0: So, yeah, I guess overall, since there was only nine trials, we need more trials in this space because I guess there's a lot of musculoskeletal conditions and uh, we do need this evidence. But... I guess one gap from the, these studies is that they all targeted clinician behavior. So it'd be interesting to see if interventions targeting other aspects of care would be more effective. So you could target financial arrangements and see if increasing co-payments for non-evidence-based care or uh, fixing clinician salary, to see if that changes it. Uh, you could investigate delivery arrangements such as the length of consultation or the use of shared decision-making Um, and also governance arrangements. So I guess mandating a level of professional competence around uh, evidence-based care. So yeah, those would be interesting interventions to target, not just at the clinician. All these interventions also targeted an increased use in evidence-based treatments. And the previous systematic review that I did showed that one in four physios provide care that guidelines recommend against. So it'd be interesting to see if there's implementation strategies that work to reduce the use of non-evidence-based care. And I think this would be a really uh, interesting area for future research.
1: Well, I wanna thank you, uh, first of all, for publishing your review in PTJ. I really enjoyed reading it. I would encourage our listeners to take a look at it. And thanks for taking the time uh, early in your morning to, to talk with me about it, I appreciate it. No worries, Alan, thanks again for the invitation.